it's nice to have infrastructure because it's nice, right? And it also allows us that buffer to use buses and other things for other purposes in emergencies like forest fires, like pandemics. But we've taken this sort of private concept of running every system at 98% efficiency, which I mean, even Google tells you they don't do that with their servers because it's not efficient. But we try to run at public infrastructure that way. And that's not working out well for us, in my opinion. You're listening to Unintended Consequences, the podcast that explores how systems become large and complex and how they change the lives of everyone they touch. I'm Kim Harrison, team sociologist. I'm Eos Graham, software wrangler. And I'm Heidi Waterhouse, transformation advocate. We work at LaunchDarkly, the feature management platform that gives you more control over your code and how it gets delivered. Unintended Consequences is brought to you by HeavyBit, an accelerator and venture fund dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today on Unintended Consequences, we're talking to J. Paul Reed about some things that you may not have thought about, about infrastructure, scaling, and adaptive capacity. We're really excited to be able to present this to you because I think it's relevant to the life that all of us are leading right now. I hope you enjoy today's episode. So we're going to pull it back to technology, put on your predictor hat, your futurist hat, and tell me what we need to build out for our next unknown unknown. Well, I think in general, the way America views a lot of infrastructure in general is not particularly productive or conducive to the outcomes that we want. So you can see the impacts on infrastructure from from the pandemic in a lot of different ways. So, you know, this idea of, of last mile and good internet, you know, I mean, all of the the struggles that uh, lower income houses had with remote learning. And, you know, I, I even, I mean, I had some coworkers, you know, that on meetings, they would have frame drops and drop out because it's like, you've got three kids in class and zoom calls and you've got, you know, the wife on a zoom call and I'm on a zoom call. Right. And, and, you know, you can see that, right. You see it in uh, transportation infrastructure, right? The fact that, you know, Muni was decimated in the first part of the pandemic because of the way that, that their BART 2, the way that their funding works, like if you don't have people writing it, then the thing just stops running because they get most, a lot, not most, but a lot of their BART gets most of its money from fares. I think that's right. Um, Muni, it's a little more complicated, but now we're looking at like, okay, well, when we open up, like those things aren't going to come. I mean, there's report Muni's not going to come back to full capacity until 2022 because of the funding problems. Yikes. We haven't figured that out as a country on how to do that. Right. You know, Kim, this will resonate with Kim, I bet. I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but I wish PG&E would go away. Um, they're, they've ignored Ugh. their electrical infrastructure and their gas infrastructure. They've let all that go to hell for 50 years because they're an investor-owned I mean, utility and yeah. it was cheaper. They're um, the cost I, of a bunch of the major forest fires we had the past couple of years. Exactly, exactly. So what's interesting to me is when their solution is, well... You know, we haven't really replaced these towers for 70 years and their useful life when they were designed is 50 years. So instead of like fixing that, which is an infrastructure, it's a capital improvement, we're just going to turn the power off on windy days. 
like what <laughs> i remember what? that oh god that's right terrible. And they're, they're still doing that right yeah you know uh, and and i think that actually impacts you more of an oakland right because the wind comes to the mm-hmm. oakland hills and stuff and and they'll yeah. you know they'll they'll turn it off and and that has a bunch of knockoff impacts right where it's like hospitals that have to jump you know a street lights like you know food i was pissed because it was like i'm all my i like i like to cook and and so i yeah stuff in the freezer that i've cooked for leftovers like that's all melting right and you saw people running around, you know, getting dry ice and all that stuff. The thing is, is that we need to start thinking of infrastructure as like, in a sense, buffer, right? And, and you look at a lot of like, you know, uh, high-speed rail in Asian countries or, you know, even bus infrastructure mm-hmm. in Europe, right? And trams and trains in, in Europe, right? That stuff, that investment has served them well i think in situations and they've been able i mean i'm trying to remember they were uh, somebody was doing like mobile covid vaccinations with the bus infrastructure right i I think it was actually in colorado it was where my mom was it was they were the the buses basically weren't running so they were able to use the bus capacity to like do mobile vaccination stuff for for, yeah the thing that happened was you could get downtown to San Francisco to get a vaccination, but you had to have driven. You couldn't take a bus. They wouldn't vaccinate if you had taken a bus. 100%. So I'll tell you my version of that. I actually had to, when I got vaccinated, I had to drive, a friend drove me because I don't have a car. And we had to go 30 miles away. Still Bay Area. It was up, actually, Kim is up in San Pablo. But it would have been easier. I could have taken BART. I could have got myself there to Oakland Coliseum. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a car. They yeah. will not vaccinate you if you were not in a car. So it's like, okay, great. Thanks. And they had slots too. They had slots that were more convenient for me, but I had to do this other thing because that's the only, you know, that was the only thing available. So Heidi, to answer your question, you know, Biden has been talking about infrastructure spending. I mean, even Trump was talking about infrastructure spending, but the framing of that is often like, all right, we're going to spend a billion dollars on infrastructures, but then it's like, okay, well, what's the, it's kind of a boondoggle. So what are you doing for the other 49 states? Well, that, and also it turns into kind of a boondoggle for construction companies, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, this this viewpoint of like, we should invest in infrastructure, like, and we we, that's a public good is a framing that I think, we've kind of lost because, you know, it's, it's just weird. I don't, I don't know why we've lost that. I think we've lost public good in a lot of directions. It's distressing. Like the vaccination conversation, vaccination protects you, not me. Yeah. I, it's funny. I have a friend who in college, he used to say this and it took me into after college to really understand how true it really was. He used to say, it's nice to be nice. And what's interesting to me about that is like infrastructure, like it's, it's nice to have infrastructure because it's nice. Right. And, and it also allows us adaptive capacity actually is what we call it in resilience engineering, but that buffer to use buses and other things for other purposes in emergencies like forest fires, like pandemics, like, you know, floods, earthquakes, whatever it might be. But we've taken this sort of private, concept of running every system at 98% efficiency, which, I mean, even Google tells you they don't do that with their servers because it's it's not efficient, but we do that and we try to run it public infrastructure that way. And that's, you know, that's not working out well for us, in my opinion, but we, it's funny, 
You said, let's get back to the technology and we're talking about infrastructure. <laughs> I, um, but but I yeah, don't that's, think it's separable. I think, you know, it's useful to say we have learned in technology that you cannot run your CPU at 98% and get anything done. Right. It doesn't work. You have to have a buffer to accomplish anything. And if we can bring that back to the public space and say, look, we have to have everybody vaccinated in order for the people who turn out to not produce antibodies for them to be okay. And I'll point this out, bringing this back to our earlier conversation. One of the things I do worry about a little bit post-pandemic, both for individuals that are that are chomping at the bit to get back to work, but companies is like, okay, everybody's back. Let's run everybody 110%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make up for the time right. that you were less productive right yeah what there was a uh netflix hr bp business partner um there are hr folks and they're they're great but she said and she was very clear about this and i love this quote she's like you are not working from home you are in a pandemic and you might be getting some work done in a place that is your home but you are not working from home and I, I loved that framing because I, I think it put the impact on all of us sort of front and center. I feel like I had to explain that to my parents a few times because they, they've been retired for many years. They're like, yeah, that working from home thing just doesn't work. And I'm like, I spend half of my work days pre-pandemic working from home. This is not the same. Please do not compare the two. Right. right. So far from the same. Yeah. yeah uh, good question for both of you. Like I, I developed these little kind of habits, you know, in the working from home. And so, so I love listening to NPR on my commute home, but I didn't have a commute. So, so what I would do is I, I would go out to the kitchen and I would put NPR on and I would wash whatever dishes I had to wash. That's, that's, that was my commute at the end of the day. Cause that was like, also like, okay, you're stepping away from work. Right. Cause I was working at my desk that I also like, you know, do my normal, like not work things at. Right. And so it was that, that those lines got blurred all over the place. Do I, either of you have little, little, uh, like pro tip life hacks for, so for getting through commute is half an hour on my couch playing a video game before I go talk to my family. Ooh, I like it. So I'm, I'm pretty much done with animal crossing. I got the statue of ultimate perfection. Oh, something. I won Stardew Valley. Many people do not know that you can win Stardew Valley, but I will grind enough to win Stardew Valley. I got all the fish. I got all the crops. I won this game. I'm looking for the next thing. But uh, I will admit I played and then, then I moved. So I haven't hooked my PlayStation back up, but I played Yakuza Zero, which is like uh, kind of a Grand Theft auto but it's very kitschy, but it's a fighting game. So it's like, it very much was like, I need to mash some buttons and do some Kung Fu and beat people up. So that was my, my outlet on that. Uh, Kim, did you have a life hack? (laughs) I kind of do something similar. I give myself like a good 20 minutes before and after to read or I don't know, Netflix or do something. Um, But living in a studio apartment, probably a weekend, I realized like I'm in one room. This is it. So like, by the time my first meeting starts, it has to feel like it's work and not messy bedroom. And so I have to make my bed every morning. I have to put on clothes that are less pajama-like and I have to make my bed to feel like I'm actually like, it is now an office space and not Netflix viewing bedroom. Right. Yeah, no, I could imagine that 
I had with a studio where there's less kind of separation. I had my desk and the desk that I'm at was three feet from my bed because it was in my bedroom. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, but, but I did have the benefit of like TV was in a different room and whatever. And that was hard with the, you know, just sleeping literally next to your work. Right. So I can yeah. imagine where studio where those lines get blurred all over the place, you know, would be really hard. So I have a question. I feel like you have brought up the socio element of this many times. We've talked about this a lot. Like, what inspired Netflix to send some of you to the school? Like, who realized, like, we can't just buy systems. We have to help these people think about it and just think about all of it in a totally different way. Where yeah. did that start? That's a really good question. So I did get my master's before I was at Netflix. Um, so I think the question you're asking is sort of like, why did Netflix think about mm. getting people with this expertise? Netflix did not send these folks to, to learn. Oh, yeah. Apologies. Yes. No, no, no. That's okay. I, I'm just clarifying so that you, you understand the answer. So, um, so we talk a lot at Netflix about strategic bets, you know, and that's a kind of a business concept. It's it's the same thing, right? If you've heard that term before, but strategic bets. And so this is all a Dave Hahn jam, right? So we have a resilience engineering team, but it's actually not the applied resilience engineering that I do. Um, that team is really responsible for our AB test infrastructure and chaos engineering infrastructure. So it's a little different. And in fact, that's technically not resilience, that's robustness. But I don't think we're going to get them to change their name to the robustness engineering team, which is okay. Um, that's totally fine. <laughs> for I, those of you who don't know, the difference between resilience and robustness is resilience is people and robustness is systems. And people who are nerds about this care greatly. Yes, very much so. Lots of R words to be pedantic about. So Dave is the manager of the core team. And Dave, uh, you'll often hear this referred to as safety one, which is, you know, sort of linear views of, you know, the dominoes effect, right? Where it's a chain of events and there's, a you know, an incident where Swiss cheese model is, is another one. You know, it's, it's a very kind of traditional safety science or thinking about safety science. And it's still used all over the place, right? But so safety one, and then there's safety two. And so what you're talking about, Kim, is, is kind of that, well, you know, these crazy little people, they're more in the safety two space. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this idea that there's socio-technical systems that you should look less at failure and look more at the success and how the system works and all of that kind of stuff. So this was a strategic bet that Dave made to build out a team that would help bring some of the deeper systems thinking and uh, safety to thinking to Netflix's operations. And so it largely focused, um, you, you want to talk about emergent stuff, Heidi, it largely w- when I was hired it w- originally and before the pandemic, it was largely focused on incident reviews and that kind of stuff. During the pandemic, my job changed pretty drastically because I, I was actually helping the team and helping the organization wrangle some of the emergent complexity coming out of this stuff. Right. Um, and so it's interesting. I I've said before, you know, and I used to say this when I was a consultant, that part of the role that I would play is a little bit of organizational therapist. Right. So looking for <laughs> weak signals of risk and then surfacing them and bringing them to leaders' attention and then having deep discussions about what to do about them, um, which sometimes may actually be, yeah, we, we understand the signal, but it's not, it's not actionable or not something we're worried about enough, right? Which is fine. So yeah, it, to answer your question, Kim, it was really a strategic bet that Dave made that he thought it would 
be in Netflix's best long-term interests to start exploring this thinking. And if you look at a lot of the way that Netflix does operations, it has a lot of a storied history of being at, at sort of the forefront and thought leaders in that space. So mm-hmm. I think the way Dave was thinking about it was a natural progression of what is the forefront of the thinking on this and then having me come aboard. And, and there were folks, by the way, doing similar work before me. So it's not like I was the first one there. Nora was at Netflix doing this sort of work. In fact, uh, Heidi, I think I, Nora was at Netflix when she presented at Redeploy, the yeah. first one. Yeah. So it's not that I was the first one, but to, to make a concerted investment, that was a, a bet that Dave made. And I'd like to think it paid off. Maybe I should ask, I should ask Dave, did it pay off? Yeah. I think he, he would say it, it did. So I know that you're interested in air traffic safety. What's one outcome of the decreased travel that you think will surprise people? So I am interested in air traffic safety. Um, I'm also a pilot, though. Full disclosure, I haven't been up in the air um, for a number of years now. I'm not current. But the thing that I think will surprise folks is uh, in various pilot circles, there have been people posting videos landing their Cessnas and their tiny little aircraft at SFO and at LAX and at all of these huge airports. And the reason that they can do that is because the the lull, especially at the beginning of the pandemic in air traffic, basically you have to have those towers staffed and they're bored up there. So if they got, you know, you take off from Palo Alto airport, and you go up up the bay and then call San Francisco Tower because of the pandemic, they were bored. So they're like, "Yeah, you want to land on the runway? Cool. Which one? Which runway would you like to land on?" <laughs> no, we that's will the one that comes in from Asia. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a lot of videos of pilots from all over the country, you know, landing at airports that they otherwise would never, ever, ever get to land at. And then you you get to write it in your logbook. I landed at SFO. That's something I have never done, by the way. I, I I've flown a lot over SFO, but I've never landed at SFO. And so I think that's a thing that decreased travel. But I, you know an effect of decreased travel. And I think probably is surprising to lots of folks. That is super surprising. And you're going to love this. We have an upcoming guest who is not a tower controller, but a center controller. Oh, nice. Nice. That's awesome. It's super, super nerdy. So that's going to Which be center? ZMP, Minneapolis. Mini, mini, mini center. Yes. Yep. What would you want us to ask this person? So I would love you to ask what you asked me, like Netflix and COVID say words tell that story. I would love to hear that story at Minneapolis Center. I also think they're probably going to have a lot of interesting perspective around when you talk about scale and sort of emergent stuff. Like I, I can speculate on some of the stuff that I think is, as you know, the national airspace system has actually restarted. So it, it wasn't, I don't think it was as abrupt as like post 9-11 where like the day of 9-11 and then right after like literally everything was shut down, right? It's not going to be that abrupt, but I do think you know, there's all these things around like, you know, pilots have to stay current, like airline pilots have to stay current. And so when you shut these systems down because the planes aren't flying, you do get some weird emergent effects. Like I'm not so worried about the pilots, they're humans, they'll figure it out. They've got, tra- they've got ways to do this. But you look at the airlines, they parked a lot of planes in the desert for a lot of months. And the planes um, aren't meant to be parked. They're not designed oh, for it. Yep. hundred percent. And so, but, but so the thing is, if there is a class of 
failure mode, like rubber that gets brittle and certain seals on the aircraft or things like that, we may see some operational impacts. I, I don't mean crashes, but we may see some diversions and things like that. I mean, this wasn't due to that, but you know, we'll maybe see videos of the, you know, that United plane in Denver that was littering its trash all over Arvada and you know on fire. We might be treated to some more videos like that, which as long as nobody gets hurt is great for me because then I can put them in my talks, my conference. That, conference. that was such a great example of a successful failure. Like your plane is on fire and one of the engines is not working. What happened? Everybody got off fine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> You guys are making me really anxious right now. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Don't be air travel even after this so much safer than being a cyclist. <laughs> and cars. Yeah. And, and cars. by the way, Kim, you're not alone. Um, I, I'm thinking of Rich Burroughs right now. He's a Twitter friend and, and he always, uh, he's a good friend, but he's always like, Paul, you make me so nervous. I can't go to a Paul Reed talk if it's a conference I flew to. And I'm like, okay. I'm talking about. Yeah, I want to take him to a Nick Means talk now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's one of those things where it's like, listen, it's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. And if it's not fine, like, if you live through it, go buy a lotto ticket because you know it's your lucky day. And if you don't, like, I mean, I love you, dude, but it was your time, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> it'll, be helping, okay, are we? it'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll all be okay. Kim, you know how much I fly. Do you know how many exciting things have happened to me on airplanes? This is true. I think exciting is when you get bumped up to like first class. Yeah. Like the most exciting thing is Delta put me in a Porsche and drove me around on the tarmac because I fly too much. Oh, Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. That's That's really cool. It's just really cool. It was a really tight connection for an overseas flight. And so as I'm coming off, they met me at the jetway and identified me by name and walked me down the stairs of the jetway (gasps) and loaded me into a car and drove me around to my connection and looked at my passport. I never set foot in the airport. That's really quite special. It was, see, loyalty for life. I'm like, that was cheap. That was so cheap compared to what I spend on, on airline tickets. Well, and the the impact was so outsized for you as a customer. You're like, I will never forget that. I will tell that story. And I will probably always fly Delta KLM now. Exactly. Your friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, my friends. So uh, it's an interesting, like, how do you do outsized things that are surprising and delightful? Mm -hmm. The phrase we use at Netflix is moments of joy, right? Moments of customer joy. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you get more of those, right? And I think that's a great example of uh, customer joy. So uh, any other recommendations for for people we should talk to or things we should be reading? Yeah. So I I have a couple articles in a couple of O'Reilly books that were released in the last six months. They're one of the like 97 things. I think it's 97. One of them is 97 things every SRE should know. And I think the other one is 97 things every cloud engineer should know. And um when I got my copies of those books and we'll, we'll link, you have show notes, right? We'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll we can get links, links to those. I know Nathan Harvey and Emily Freeman edited one of them. And then the other one was edited by um, Jamie Wu and Emil Stolarski. But I have to tell you, paging through both of those, um, I, the article title for one of the articles I wrote was um, like, what can safety science nerds teach us about? operations or whatever. And then I wrote the article and I I love that title. Right. And I think it's the one that Jamie and Emil edited. I really like the structure of it because it starts from like, how do you go from zero to one 
and there's a bunch of articles. And then the next section is how do you go from one to 10? Right. And then the section that my article is in is in the end. And it's like, how do you go from like a thousand to infinity? <laughs> Hello, right? nerds. Yeah. Exactly. If like you how, like, have actual scale problems. You are big enough to actually be using Kubernetes. Right. Well, and it, also it's this like, you know, what are these crazy people that are on the bleeding edge saying that one of two things will happen. They will either self-immolate with whatever technology they're playing with, or it'll be like the next fusion thing that we're all using. So it's one or the other, but you know, here's an article <laughs> they wrote before we know which it is. Right. And so I, my point was you should grab copies of those books because when I sat, when I got my copies and sat down and started kind of just looking through them, I was just amazed at all the contributions that they got, like, like the variety of the different, like names I recognize and some names that like, obviously lots of friends that I knew, but you know, you know them, you know, you would know them too, Heidi and probably Kim, you would know those names too, because, you know, we see them at conferences, right. But then also like people that I know of, but don't know personally were in that book, uh, both of those books. And so, you know, I really liked that the way they both were segmented and section out, there was really something for everyone and a lot of good content in there. So if you're looking for like new ideas and, and, you know, even, even sort of new hot takes on current ideas, those two books are a good place to just kind of page through and, you know, get tidbits of knowledge. And it's funny, Jamie and Emily were like, and Nathan and Emily were too, like the word limit is 600 words. It's so hard. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So the good news is the good news is like, you will never. It's not boring. Well, the investment is very low if it is, right? You're not going to waste a ton of time. It's very dense Um, though. But yeah, so I'd recommend those two things to take a look at, especially if you're wanting to re-familiarize yourself with all that stuff. And is there anybody or any like job title that you think we should be inviting on? Ooh, that's a good one. So you're you're looking at a lot of scaling stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Have you had network engineers on? Not yet. There you go. I would get a network engineer. I would love to hear about some of how they deal with some of the scaling stuff. Like it would be great to have like an Amazon network engineer that has to support like, you know, the APIs that connect EC2 instances to networks and all that kind of stuff. Like all yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. Like how did we scale the internet that fast? Maybe somebody from a CDN. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hundred percent CDN. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts for the the amazing audience? <laughs> the next few months are going to be joyous and they're going to be hard. Mm-hmm. So just give grace to yourself and others. You know, we talk a lot about this being a black swan event. You know, once in a lifetime, and I hope that it is. And so as we go through that, just you know, the the emergence of that. Remember, emerging from the the pandemic is going to be emergent. Literally and figuratively. It's going to be wild. (laughs) It really is. You know, Australians don't understand this phrase. Why? Swans are black in Australia. Oh, yeah. Which I think is a super interesting reflection on like expectations, but for another time. Have an Australian on. There you go. Ask about that. Australian network engineer. That'd be amazing. There you go. If if any Australian network engineers out there are listening, we'd love to talk to you. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unintended Consequences. To help us observe how the unexpected success of a project can adversely affect the environment around it, please give this podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and promote it to every single person you know. You can learn more about LaunchDarkly at launchdarkly.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at LaunchDarkly. 